You're listening to Sunday Worship at Weddington Methodist Church. Find more ways to worship, fellowship, serve, study, and be supported at weddingtonchurch.org. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And while you're turning, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, a wonderful time um, with family and friends and loved ones, but also just to be reminded how blessed we really are. Um, I I think it was uh, Charles Dickens who once said that we have it mixed up in our country. It should be 364 days of Thanksgiving and one day of griping uh, because we are indeed so blessed here And so thank you to all of you and welcome to all of you that are joining us online as well as we join together and worship and uh, some of our Bonds Grove congregation as well. Welcome to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning of verse 11, Paul is writing to his apprentice and he says these words. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you. To keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him. Be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for this privilege now of studying it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, this is your church. So I pray that this will be your message and not my own. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I always find it interesting, as we've shared before, how sometimes we in the United States are so enamored with royalty, even though we don't have royalty. I I find it kind of interesting how enamored we are with the king and the queen, even though if you look at our history, we were kind of trying to get away from that kind of stuff just a little bit. But we love to keep up. And I, I remember watching the coronation of, of King Charles. And, and it was just so interesting to see the pageantry and, and, the, and the people from all around who wanted to come and to experience it. And, and then, you know, the, the service itself. And there was a slight uncomfortableness for me, I'll confess, because I'm going, you know, he's just a human being, right? He's just a, just a man. And then there was, you know, Queen Elizabeth, and she had this sense of majesty about her, this aura about her. And if you really want to learn more about her, there's a whole series called The Crown. And you can, you know, we can watch it. We did as our family, you know, you kind of get in and go, What's, what would it be like? You just wonder, what would it be like? 
to be royalty? What would it be like to grow up in palaces? What would it be like, even as an adult, to get up in the morning and someone else ties your shoes? Well, that could be the life, you know? We're enamored by it. I mean, we, we love to pay attention to what's happening with William and Kate and then, you know, with Harry and Meghan. And did you hear? No. And we get so enamored by what's going on. We're intrigued. Nancy and I had the privilege uh, a couple years ago to go over to England. It was right before COVID. And I was part of a program that paid for me to get to come over. I was blessed to go over and uh, do some study at Durham University in the northern part of England and, and to be, you know, through Scotland. And um, it had always been on our list that we wanted to go there someday. So since I was already there and my round trip was paid, it only made sense, you know, to bring her over. And so we, we took some time and, wow, it's just incredible. You go like into the Westminster Abbey and just, it's so massive and gorgeous and beautiful. And you look around at that and then you, you go to the palaces and you, you start looking around like in Buckingham Palace and, and just walking through and imagine I just don't know what it's like to watch a ball game here in a room like this, you know, and, and just to be able to live that kind of life and, and the Windsor Castle and Kensington. I mean, it, it was great. But one of the things that I noticed in every one of those that we went to is, is along the walls, there were these huge portraits, these paintings of former kings and queens. And you just look at them and you look at the history and you, you think about it all and then you realize every one of them were mortal. Every one of them. No matter how great or not so great they may have been, they were mortal. Now today, as Dr. Jell shared with you a moment ago, this is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the Christian year. The Christian year begins on the first Sunday of Advent, which is next Sunday. So when you come in next Sunday, our altar guild, who are just absolutely amazing, they're the greatest church angels you've ever seen. They'll come in, transform the place with trees and Advent wreaths and all kinds of stuff. And, and we'll come in and that starts a new year as we prepare for the coming of the Christ child. But the church, the early church decided too that to pause at the end of the year and be reminded just who is it that we believe? Just who is our Lord? Just who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Who is our sovereign? Who is the one that, that we follow that that we are a part of. Now, in biblical times, in the time when Paul was writing this, time of Jesus as well, the Roman Empire was massive, and you lived in a Greco-Roman world, and in the Greco-Roman world, there was a belief in, in so many gods. There were all kinds of gods for various things. As a matter of fact, Raymond Collins, it's kind of shocking when you hear that in the Greco-Roman world, when you heard the word sovereign, that was actually an epithet for Zeus. Not our God, but it was the understanding of the God Zeus, the one who was to consider to be the most powerful, the mightiest of the gods, the, the one who reigned from Mount Olympus. It's a different culture. 
Now, we think it's totally different, but it's not totally different for us. We too have other gods. We just don't call them gods. But there are other things that compete for our, our allegiance. But even in biblical times, emperors believed themselves to be divine. Like the Roman emperors often considered themselves to be God. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Revelation, which is an amazing book, and unfortunately it's a book that scares many of us all, so we miss the, the beauty of it. But actually what's happening there is that there was an emperor by the name of Nero who was just unmerciful to the Christians and the way he persecuted the church and persecuted Christians and people thought it cannot get any worse. The last thing you should ever say is it cannot get worse. Because it did. All of a sudden, Domitian appears. And Domitian was this young, arrogant emperor who decided, you shall refer to me as our Lord and God. Well, that's a problem for the Judeo-Christian people. Because Jews and Christians alike, we read in the commandments that there's only one God. You'll have no other gods before you. There's only one. The Lord our God is one. That's the Shema, which is wrapped up and on the doorpost. There's only one God. We can't do that. Well, emperors don't like to be told, I'm not doing what you said. And so all of a sudden, then, there was this persecution that's going on too. And Paul is reminding Timothy, you need to understand and never forget who the real king is is. You can never forget who it is that we follow, the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Paul actually mentions this buzzword that would have raised all kinds of attention in his day that we kind of read over. And when we read the scripture, it said the manifestation of our Lord Jesus, but, but actually the Greek used a, a different buzzword. It was the word epiphany. When God reveals this to you, when God reveals our Lord Jesus Christ to you, it's an epiphany. Look at verse 13. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the epiphany, God's revealing the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. Now listen to this. You're writing in a world where there are all kinds of other gods, but even the emperor believes he's God. And Paul then says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the blessed and the only sovereign. He is the king of kings. Notice capital K for king of little k kings and the capital L lord of little l lords. It is he alone who has immortality and who dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one's ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. In a world that is occupied by one who believes himself to be God. Reminds us too, that title uh, of Revelation again in chapter 19 verse 16 you have this image of the white horse and the rider who's the word of God and the scripture says that on his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed help me with this king of kings and lord of lords this is who we are 
This is who Jesus is. And N.T. Wright, the great Oxford scholar and bishop, said that the point of all of this is that there are, these are ways which you must get in shape both to be ready for the king when he appears, the return of Christ, and to enlist in his service during the present time. We're to be ready for his return, but also then to enlist in his service in the meantime, in the present time. So Paul says to Timothy, man of God, that's a beautiful title. It's a beautiful reference you see in the scripture when someone's called to be a prophet or speak on behalf of God. Pretty soon it becomes a message or the title for all who believe in God. Can you imagine, because I was thinking about this at my brother's funeral, when you hear people talking, that at some point somebody's going to be talking about me. So I'm going to write up what I need them to say. I'm kidding. He was awesome. But imagine when somebody looks at you and says, you're a man of God. You are a woman of God. You are clearly a child of God. Paul looks at Timothy and he goes, you are a man of God. But now you need to prioritize some things. He said, you need to shun, you need to shun the previous things. And when you, when you look at that, you've got to look and go, what, what is it that he's talking about there? And if you read the rest of the letter, the earlier part, you know, you've got to shun these false teachings. You've got to shun these false deities. You've got to shun the allure to, to, you know, to get caught up in the culture and in the world around you and, and lose sight of what's really important. You've got to shun those, but then pursue you're to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Tom Oden, who was an amazing theologian and biblical scholar, he, he shares when he's reading the scripture and talking about the scripture that so many times we look at Christian faith as being on the defensive, that, you know, it's defending. How do we defend from this? And how do we defend from that? And, and, and even when you look at the, the commandments, there are 613 commandments, there are indeed 365, you should not do this. But there are 248, you should do this. In other words, what Tom Oden is saying is, here the Christian is called to be offensive. It's not just defensive as Christians, but we're called to be offensive. And that word pursue, when you look at the Greek word, actually means to run toward. The church is called to run, not to do the church walk. But the church is called to run with energy and with everything that we've got, we're called to run toward righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. It means to pursue it with everything you've got. And then Paul goes on to say, and you're called to fight the good fight. And I know sometimes we don't really like to hear that imagery of, of fighting, but the challenging thing that Paul wants us to realize, and he talks about that our battle is not against human beings, but, but against princes and powers. If we don't recognize that we're in a battle against sin and evil, that we're in a battle against Satan, we've already lost it. He's going, you've got to fight the good fight. You've got to jump in there with everything that you've got. 
And it reminds me, when you read the next letter that Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy, and you turn over to chapter 4, which is as he's wrapping it up, and, and this is the older Paul writing to his apprentice, and he's handing him the baton. You know, his ministry's coming to an end. Timothy is now taking over the ministry. Paul says to him in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now hold that in your mind and go back to what we just read in 1 Timothy 6 because all Paul is saying to his apprentice is that's what I want from you. I want you to fight the good fight. I want you to finish the race. You've got to run. You've got to pursue it with everything you've got. And I want you to keep the faith because now the task, it's, it's ours. Dr. James Dunn says, maintaining the faith and living the faith require the energy of a good athlete. I mean, the church is called to be doing something. Paul says, Timothy, take hold of that eternal life. I mean, you've been given the gift of eternal life. And one of the things that we so often get wrong, I think, in our faith and our theology is we think of eternal life as what happens the moment we die. But actually, eternal life happens now. And I love the way the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it, that eternal life converts the present life. Because I know I have eternal life, I can live this life today differently. So Paul's saying, you grab hold of that eternal life. You're part of a bigger kingdom. You're not, part of this temp you're not limited to this temporal world in which we live, but you're part of something bigger. And hold on to your good confession, verse 12. And some scholars wonder, is that it, the confession made it his baptism when he said, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord, and I seek to be a Christian, and I seek to be a disciple of Christ, or was it at his ordination? Either way, you are around people and you confess, this is who you are, this is what you believe, this is your life. You've got to hold on to that. And in verse 13, you see Paul's passion when he goes, I'm standing saying this to you in the very presence of God and of Christ Jesus when I charge you, keep the commandment. Now, what was the great commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. In other words, my charge to you is you love God with everything you've got. You love God with everything you've got. It was Augustine who once said, love God and do whatever you want to do. And people thought, that sounds so cheap. But what he was saying was, if you love God, if you really love God, then you can do whatever you want to do to be the people that God is calling you to be. And then he wraps it up. He says, to the blessed and only sovereign. Now, again, that word only, when we read it in the English, is a little bit different because at the beginning I share with you that Paul's writing to Timothy in a culture that was polytheistic. Poly means many, theistic means God, so many gods. But the, actually the word for only here in the Greek is the word mono because we are monotheistic. There is only one God, the blessed and the mono-sovereign. There's only one all-powerful God. Paul actually said it to Timothy at the very beginning in 1 Timothy 1, 17, when he says, to the king of the ages, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the end of a Christian year. And it's the beginning of a new year in the eyes of the church. It's the time that we wrap up one year, we now turn and we start the process over again where here we go through Advent, we're going to go into Christmas, we're going to go into Epiphany, which is the manifestation of God with the wise men, then we'll go through Lent, preparing again for the cross, we'll celebrate Easter, then we'll go into Pentecost. I mean, it's the beginning of a whole new, this is the story of our faith. This is who we are. This is what we believe. There are two Advents, though. There is the first Advent, which we're mainly familiar with, and and that's the coming of the Christ child as the baby born in the barn, laid in the manger. I mean, we're we're starting to decorate our houses, and if you're like us, you're going to have nativity scenes put everywhere. And you may have already started that. If you're like a lot of us, you have Thanksgiving Day, and you eat a lot of stuff and you watch a lot of ball games and then the next day it's go get the tree go get boxes now the nice thing that we have now is our kids are growing up and our son's no longer a little boy and our daughter because you know if you get the grandchild you ought to get a son-in-law it kind of comes as a package you know he's an adult too and so now, you know, when it's like, go get the boxes, it's not just me, it's not just us anymore, you know, and it's, it is kind of nice to go. And, and then Nancy and Ashley, they just did a lot of the decoration and started putting things up, but we're familiar with the nativity scenes. Here are the shepherds. Here's the baby Jesus. We'll put the animals around. We get ready for it. But then there's a second advent. And that's the return of the Christ child. And that's the story that we know, that, that this baby grows up and he will so love the world that he'll give his life for us. He'll die on the cross. He'll rise again from the dead. He'll ascend into heaven. And, and now we're waiting for him to return. And that's known as the second advent, that second return. And we're kind of called in the middle. And that's where Timothy is. And Paul is trying to tell him, as you stay there, you've got to remember who your God is. Got to remember who Jesus is. Now, years ago, there was a great theological work that was put out. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was just a few years ago, and it was actually inspired by NASCAR, known as Talladega Nights. Just checking to see if you're with me. You, You remember the movie Talladega Nights? It's a silly kind of movie, actually, but, you know, some of us can relate to it. And, and there's Ricky Bobby getting ready to say grace at the table. Families gathered around the table. Remember the scene? And, 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 he, and he folds his hands and he gets ready to pray. And he goes, dear Lord, baby Jesus. And his wife gets really frustrated. And Carly looks at him and he goes, and she goes, hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him Baby. It's a little bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And all of a sudden, that just starts this whole conversation of how they want to picture Jesus. I mean, the, the kids are going, I, I like to think of Jesus as ninja Jesus. 
you know. And, and, and then, you know, another one's going, I like to think of, you know, like a Jesus with wings on that he kind of flutters around a little bit. And, and they start sharing all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden it gets a little aggravating. And, and Ricky gets ready to say the prayer. And he goes, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. And then he prays this beautiful prayer that really is theological. Because listen to what he said. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't know even a word yet, just a, a little infant, so cuddly. But then there's a phrase that we often miss because we're so caught up in laughing about the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. He goes, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Go back because you're going to do it, you know, because I did. It's like, I, that is in there, right? And go back and listen to it. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn, infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. You're still the all-powerful. You are still God. Now, Nelson Cowan, a theologian, probably puts it a little more sacred when he said, the crucified God who reconciles the world to himself is the same God who will come again in glory and is the same God who will come as a humble infant in a manger. The church really seemed to get it that before we can celebrate Advent and Christmas, we might really need to know who it is we follow. The blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our charge is to be his people, people of God, and to shun the false teachings and the false deities and those things which may interfere, and then to run with perseverance, to run and pursue being the people that God is calling us to be. Individually as Christians, together as the church. So that when God does reveal an epiphany again before us, who this Jesus the Christ is, we will be ready. Will you pray with me? Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, you don't even know a word yet, just an infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. You are our God. You are the blessed and the only sovereign. You our God, Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are your church. 
So help us to pursue, to run, to be the people that you call us to be so that individually we may be your Christians, your disciples, and together we may be your church, the people of the Almighty God, now and forever. Amen.